So Jesus, you are humble. We receive your humility. Make us humble. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we learned that Jesus' birth caused a war in the cosmos. Something that we don't see with our eyes, but in the spiritual realm is most certainly happening. And this war began way back in the Garden of Eden. And today we're going to continue our Advent series by looking at how the humility of Jesus is a vital weapon in this war for hope through darkness. Now, while Jesus, his birth caused a spike in this war, and we saw it last week with Cole's message. Thank you, Cole. Um, his, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension actually set God's plan of redemption into motion. And I think it's going to be helpful for us, because we're going to be looking at Philippians 2 today, I think it's going to be helpful for us to kind of pick up the story after the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. And I know most of us here are thinking, well, this doesn't sound like a Christmas sermon. Just hang with me, we'll get there. Um, It's just going to take a moment. But what I want to do is just talk briefly about Paul, who was radically converted uh, for his persecution of the Jews. God saves him and sets him on a new mission. And um, if you follow the story in the book of Acts, you can see about three major missionary journeys, which is where we get most of the letters that we read in the New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. These are the result of Paul's missionary journeys, like a father who spends time with his children, noticing there's a little dysfunction here, and I need to correct, encourage, or instruct. Uh, That's how we get the letters. And so Paul is... After his third missionary journey now, um, and his second Roman imprisonment. And I just want to read you just a brief verse from Acts chapter 24, which I love Paul. You You can read all of Acts chapter 24, but there's one statement in there where Paul has just such awesome boldness when he's dealing with Felix. Everybody else is kind of bowing to him, and Paul's like, yeah, sorry, not doing that. Uh, I, I answer to one Lord. And um, Paul's just super bold. But just before that, listen to this accusation that some of these other people who are just bowing at the feet of Felix are making of Paul. It says, We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Basically, he's saying Paul's a troublemaker. And so we're just going to throw him in prison. So Paul was arrested then at that point. And he was placed, according to church tradition, in the Mamertine prison. So if you look here, there's just a little picture of it, okay? And I want to frame some things for us as we start when we look at the humility of Jesus. The Mamertine prison is in Rome, and it's been called the House of Darkness. According to church tradition and and much of what we gain from the book of Acts, we can Uh, with a fair degree of certainty, assume Paul was held here when he's writing some of his letters. 
Few prisons were as dim and dank and dirty as the lower chamber that Paul occupied. Now, I say lower chamber because this chamber above it sat an open chamber that was on the ground level that had door access and windows. The access that you see there is the hole at the top, which was basically like a sewer grate. That was your light. That was it. No windows. You're lowered down through that, and that's where you stay. So here's the question. The whole cell is like six and a half feet tall, so about five inches taller than me. It's like 30 foot by 22 foot, um, and it's just a bunch of people piled in there. Okay? Paul wrote Philippians from there. I don't know about you, but like when stuff goes bad for me, I don't generally remain focused. That's big time. I mean, look at that. It's not like he has a whole lot of stuff to work with. But if you pay close attention, if you read through the book of Philippians, you'll notice like somewhere between 11 and 13 times, Paul uses the term uh, joy, rejoicing, celebration, words like that. You're like, seriously? You're in a dank, dirty prison, musty, nasty. Your circumstances couldn't be worse. Who knows if you get a shower or food at a timely fashion? And you're like, joy! Really? Really? That's your take? So I think the reason that's his take is because Paul knows the great darkness that the humble birth of Jesus penetrated. Isaiah 9 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And Vic read us what follows after that Unto us a Savior is born. Savior. So today we're going to use Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 and then some select passages from Luke 1 and 2 as well as Matthew to guide us toward an understanding of how the humility of Jesus frames our entire existence. It's his humble entry into broken humanity and it's his humble obedience that leads to an exaltation. So turn with me in your pew Bible to page 980 for Philippians chapter 2 and follow along. Um, Actually, I would prefer if you followed along on your feet. Stand up while we give God's word the honor that it deserves. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you think Paul's concerned about unity? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, rather, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but tempted, or sorry, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have to reckon with this reality that Jesus' humility leads to an exaltation that says, hey, look, you can bow to him now willingly or later forcibly. Which will it be? Go ahead and have a seat. So Paul's humble entry. The first four verses uh, frame out Paul's desire for unity. It talks all about um, selfish ambition and, and vain conceit. I think the NIV actually says vain conceit. Um, if, if this is one of the cases where I really love the, the King James translation. It actually says vain glory. It's like uh, we live in a culture that loves glory, Right? Everything from the dinner plate that I had posted and curated just perfectly online to uh, what my Christmas tree setup looks like. Attached with some nice music so that everybody thinks that my whole life is just one peaceful celebratory party. Okay? Vainglory. But I would just say this, that his humble entry into broken humanity paves the way for relational unity. Because no one else is doing what Jesus did. No one else. And so what I thought I would do is just speak a little bit about what selfish ambition is and what conceit is. Because Paul touches on those. Selfish ambition is just simply this desire to put yourself forward. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been someone who, because you were with some people and you did something noteworthy or worthwhile, you actually, like, they didn't, they didn't recognize it, so maybe you thought you would help them recognize it by saying, hey, did you, did you notice how, you know, the decorations here? I kind of helped set that up. It's this desire to put yourself forward, to be noticed, to be affirmed, to be told that you are worthwhile. And Paul says, selfish ambition. It, the idea of putting myself forward generally has uh, negative motives. And then he talks about this idea of conceit. Conceit is this empty pride in yourself or your abilities. It's this idea that um, I'm really good and I never mess these things up. I've got it all figured out and so people need to learn from me. This is, right? It's a lot of talk about who I am, what I've done, and how valuable and worthwhile I am. It's empty, Paul says. That's what he's after. And so what I thought would be helpful is to say, well, what about the different ways that Jesus came on the scene? Like, to who did he reveal himself? And why was it instructive for us? So I selected a couple, Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth and the shepherds. And I thought it would be helpful for us to just kind of glance at those. So first, Jesus comes quietly to a freaked out, engaged teenage man. First of all, I think by definition, if you're a teenager and you're engaged to be married, you should be freaked out. Let's just be real. Like that's, that seems like that would be a tall bill to fill, okay? But in that time and culture, it was common. Think, think of a groom about a week before his wedding. Is he ever nervous? Like, maybe. I think so. I was nervous. I was like, oh man, what am I, what am I getting into here? And so here's Joseph, and it says in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
do not fear. Right, on top of that one, no worries. I got it. No fear happening here. To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay? I don't know about you, but if I told you that I had a dream of this magnitude, um, I think that you might actually think I was nuts. So I think that might be a little bit of the reason why Joseph is a little freaked out. Not the least of which is also his, his soon-to-be wife is pregnant and they haven't come together, so he's got all sorts of assumptions happening. Okay? So Jesus appears to him. Then he appears, or he comes quietly, to Mary, a freaked-out, engaged teenage female. Which, again, by definition, if you're an engaged teenager, you should probably be freaked out. Okay? Uh, and we see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, where it says, The angel said to her, Again, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So we're starting to get an eternal picture of what's happening here. Think of the weight and the magnitude. Could you even imagine Joseph and Mary sitting down for a cup of coffee saying, so, uh, like, what was your dream like? Oh, you know, just an eternal Savior being born through my virgin wife. What about you? <laughs> I mean, just imagine the weight and the magnitude of those things. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be born, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. I'd like a little bit more of a roadmap if I were Mary. If I were going to be carrying the Savior of the universe for all time and eternity, I'd like a little bit more of some GPS coordinates, some stops and some starts, and some things that I'm supposed to do. And this is just a little bit more faith-oriented. But look at her response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She doesn't balk at the responsibility. She trusts God. It's incredible. And then we see an older, barren couple, and she now is pregnant, Elizabeth. I just want to read from verse 39 uh, for a couple of verses that says this in Luke chapter 1. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, why do you think she would go there? I think probably first and foremost, she just had a dream. She was told she's with child. That's miraculous. And she's told that your cousin is also uh, with child miraculously. Don't you think she'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with her because it sounds like she might be able to identify with me. And so she's excited. She goes to see Elizabeth and, and it says, and Elizabeth 
heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord? How in the world is this happening? She's, Elizabeth is so humble in her reception of Mary. Mary comes in and she's like, she recognizes that Mary is carrying Jesus in some way. Why is it that the mother of my Lord? So again, Elizabeth takes this humble stance. Joseph takes this humble stance. Mary takes this humble stance. Zechariah, though we're not going to turn there, takes this humble stance as well. And then the shepherds. You can see it in Luke 2, uh, like verses 8 through 19, but I'm just going to read verse 15. He says, they say this, the shepherds, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So there seem to be two common elements with all of these stories. All of them seem to acknowledge the Lord's activity in it. And then all of them seem to respond humbly and obediently to what's being revealed. Perhaps a lesson for us? Perhaps a lesson for our more uh, prove it to me, give me the evidence, show me what we need to do sort of response? In each of these cases, though, what's being revealed is that the arrival of Jesus paves the way for relational unity. And the first relationship that is made able to be unified is God and man. He says it with Joseph. He's going to, be the, he's going to save Israel from their sins. He's going to be a savior. And if you read all of the accounts, you see that this, that peace on earth, this idea of unity among men, is only made possible by the advent of a baby that had more livestock at his birth than humans. A king of a universe, a king of our universe, who had no rival in terms of authority and power, but chose to enter in the most humble and almost laughable ways. Right? Could you imagine the stench in the room in which he was born? The makeshift, like, oh crud, here he comes. What do we got here? We got like this little blanket that's laying on the ground underneath a lamb that we got to pull out and wrap him in. We've got dirty straw and hay and poop slinging all over the place, and here comes Jesus, king of the universe. He's not being, there's no shouting, there's no, there's no huge uproar of like, hey, this is a kingdom, this is how things work, this is, this is incredible. And so each time there's humble obedience and a walking out of what's been revealed. And this is what Paul is choosing to focus on in verses like 6 and 7. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Listen, you can't miss this here. This passage shows us both the divinity of Christ, his origins are from God. Okay, no beginning, no end. Jesus always is. Jesus was present at creation. He is divine. He is God. But then, on purpose, Jesus chooses 
to enter our broken humanity in order to identify with us. Jesus is man. Jesus is both God and man in the clearest sense. Have you ever been around somebody who comes from money or status or privilege? And have you ever noticed that they kind of have, at times, a little bit of an entitlement mentality? Like, uh, this is owed to me, or I can't believe I had to wait for two minutes in the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. I thought they had this nailed. What in the world? Like, this is taking too long. There's a little bit of an entitlement mentality. And especially, and I think Tim said it well as he was prepping us for today, just about no distractions. We're living in this day and age where it's like Christmas is about that. Christmas is a you deserve and then insert whatever it is that's on your Christmas list. And we become utterly entitled people. Now, we all know in here that none of us should be entitled, right? Maybe some of us need a little bit more time for humbling. But... Many of us in here know, oh yeah, I don't, <laughs> like, I really don't deserve that. It's, it's more of a gift. It's, uh, it's not a need, right? But if there ever was someone, if there ever was someone who had every right to exercise and chose not to, it's Jesus. And we get to be like him. That's why it says in Philippians 2, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus. They're saying, look, Jesus chose not to be entitled. It's a pathway for you. It's a pathway for me to choose not to be entitled, to not be upset or disgruntled or frustrated when something doesn't go my way, to, to not get so wrapped up in what I knew was supposed to happen and it's not happening the way I thought it should happen and my control is being yanked from me. Think of Jesus. Like, okay, son, I'm going to have you be born as a human into a crap-filled stall. Right? Uh, actually, I'd like to make a petition for a Marriott. Maybe a couple of nurses there, bedside to make sure that mom's taken care of. Sorry. You got a teenage boy who's going to help you deliver and a couple of livestock who are going to watch the whole ordeal. Jesus is unbelievably humble. And I think this is juxtaposed so greatly when you look at like Matthew 2 and then further on in Matthew, especially this part just always gets me. Herod the Great, who was the emperor at the time, he was ruthless, absolutely ruthless. And we know the story, right? That there are three wise men who are coming to present gifts to Jesus because um, his birth is of such significance that they have to respond. And so they're going with gifts that all have great symbolism. And they see Herod, and Herod's like, yes, 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 make sure you tell me exactly where he's located. So that way I can come and worship him too. And if I'm a wise man, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you only worship yourself and you're telling me you're going to worship an infant? Good luck. And so being warned in a dream in Matthew 2, they actually go a different way. So look at the difference of the two kingdoms here. 
Because this is what Christianity is all about. It's about the display and invitation into the kingdom of God, which is accessible to everyone regardless of your age, regardless of your race, regardless of who you are. You have access fully to the kingdom of God. And now the second piece to that is that you start to see it's this demonstration of things that can't be explained any other way apart from the divine. A star? Really? Over one place? That's how they found him? Yeah. A teenage guy gets a dream and he follows after it. A teenage girl gets a second dream and she follows after it. An elderly couple has a child. Yeah. And these, these shepherds who are so despised, they're almost inhuman. Their, their testimony in first century was not even accepted in court. They were like subhuman. And God says, yep, go to them. So God displays these two kingdoms with Herod and with Jesus' birth. With Herod, he's all about trying to protect and extend his kingdom, but he does it through killing. He does it through killing every Jewish male two years old and younger because he reasons, well, if I can kill all of them, then this Jesus who's supposed to take over and his reign is supposed to be so amazing, I can just flatten it and it'll be all about me. And it doesn't work that way. You don't thwart what God put into motion. You're not that powerful. You're just not. And here's Jesus, the opposite of entitlement. Being born with more livestock to celebrate his coming than humans. And as we see in Philippians 2, he's dying to give his kingdom away. It's the opposite of Herod. So Herod the Great tries to protect it by killing. Jesus gives it by offering his life. And then about 30 years later, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, actually beheads John the Baptist because, you know, John kind of calls him to the carpet on a marital affair that's less than good. (laughs) And he also consents to the beating and crucifixion of Jesus. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Crazy. Crazy. And so we see Jesus here showing us how he gives his kingdom away. That it's a sacrifice for the sake of others. And I love how Mary captures this. When she responds, after having the dream, hearing from Joseph, hearing from the angel herself, and then hearing from Elizabeth, listen to her response. In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's largely held that Herod the Great died of a debilitating muscular degenerative disease. His selfishness literally ate him alive. And here's Jesus dying to give away humility. It's awesome. So listen to what she says then, and this will be kind of the the last three pieces that we see in 53, 54, and 55 of Luke chapter 1 is just this. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So real quick, filling, helping, speaking. Clearly, Mary has in view here, you know, material blessings and provisions for sure. That's what God is doing here. But to a greater and more accurate extent, she also sees that the filling is Christ himself. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His greatest and most prized and joy-filled possession. He did not say, "Mm, sorry, you're not going to get that. And then we see this idea of helping. He has helped his servant Israel. Now, help is first and foremost salvation. He saves, right? But in an ongoing way, he supplies his Holy Spirit to be our comforter, our convictor, our encourager, our counselor. He helps. It's about rescue. Have you ever been so destitute and stuck and trying to make a decision? Like, man, I've got no wisdom here. God, I just need, I need something from you. Would you please help me to understand? Yeah, he supplies his Holy Spirit. He'll call to mind scriptures that you've read before. He'll bring to mind conversations. He'll also bolster your conviction and your confidence that, okay, this might be a hard decision, but God, you're with me and I'm going to do it. That's help. That's rescue. That's what Jesus came to give. That's what Mary, with a baby still in her womb, and all the uncertainty before her, sees by faith. That's what she sees. Do you? And then finally, it says he has spoken to his servant Abraham and to his offspring forever. Any good relationship, any good relationship is about speaking. It's about communication. If I choose not to communicate with you, I am telling you something. And what I love is that God speaks to us all the time. A couple of ways. Number one, primarily, God speaks to us through his revealed and written word. It's awesome. Secondly, God speaks to us by his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit will put things in your mind to say or to do, or, and you'll be like, man, where'd that come from? I can tell you so many times, so many stories of things that have come to mind that there's no way this box of rocks would ever have come up with it, okay? It's Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, helping me, speaking to me. And he also speaks to us through circumstances and relationships. What a promise, So then what does this all mean? Truth and practice. Let's go back to Paul. What was his dying wish? You see, back in that Roman prison, in the maritime prison, that place was largely considered a holding cell for execution. It wasn't like you're going to stay here and then eventually you'll get bond and then you'll get out and then we'll have a trial. You were tossed in those prisons because of execution being your next step. So Paul's writing a letter to Philippians knowing I'm a dead man walking. 
What's your dying wish? If you were locked in that cell writing a letter to the Philippian church, what would be the thing that you wanted more than anything? Paul communicates so clearly that Jesus' humility motivates every bit of unity that he wants to see. He actually says in the beginning part, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by getting along. Wow. And I'm over here thinking about myself when times get hard. So what's your dying wish? Or ask this, and this one's a harder one. I want you to ask a loved one, in what ways is it common for me to rely on or promote myself? Okay, and after you ask that question and you wait for a little bit, maybe ask this follow-up question. How has this hurt you? Our pride always hurts someone. Always hurts someone. Next, ask for help. If we're looking at specific ways that we can put this into practice, maybe you're the person who's like, "Ah, I I could never let somebody help me. Let somebody see your dirty house. It's okay. Let somebody in to the mess of the relationship that you have with your adult child to pray for you. Let someone see the vulnerability of your struggle that I can't do this on my own. I don't want to gamble. I don't want to drink. I don't want to look at pornography, but I, I still am. Let somebody in. Ask for help. Next, I would say uh, sit. You're like, sit. Just sit? Yeah, sit. Job had three awesome friends for seven days. All of his suffering happened. It was horrible. He loses everything except for a wife who gripes. Not super helpful. And then he gets three friends who come over and they see, it says in Job, they see that his suffering is great and no one says a word for seven days. Those were good friends. And then they opened their mouth. And then they were bad friends. Unhelpful friends, right? So sitting is about presence. Sitting is about like, I don't have all the answers. But like, I, I know that your sickness that you're facing, like, I, I can't make it go away. I can pray, I can ask God, but I can't. I think what you need is this. I think what you need is me next to you. I don't think that you need a solution. I think you need a savior. I think you need relationship. And then finally, maybe the last thing you could do as friends, you can advance the slides. I think they have them up there. Um, I think what you'll see, too, is you could, you could even memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 11 as a family or as a life group or as an individual. You know, print it out on a sheet of paper, stick it to your fridge, put it on the mirror, and start to think about that verse, like, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Look back through that truth and practice. Spend some time reflecting. Ask the Lord. Andrew Murray, the preacher from the 1800s, said this. In heaven and on earth, pride or self-exaltation is the very gateway to hell. The truth is this. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Look not only on pride as an unbecoming temper, nor at humility as a decent virtue. For the one is death and the other is life. The one is hell and the other is heaven. If you could see what a sweet, divine, transforming power there is in humility, how it expels the very poison of your nature 
and makes room for the Spirit of God to live in you, you would rather wish to be the footstool of all the world than want the smallest degree of it. Father, I pray that you would help us this week walk out humility by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.